afterlife. And so as we read the Old Testament, what's mentioned in there? Well, actually, in the Old Testament, the early parts, the early dating parts of the Old Testament, there's not really anything mentioned about afterlife. You kind of put in the ground and then there's nothing really mentioned after that. There's more of a focus initially in this journey of the here and now. And then as the Old Testament develops, it becomes a realm where the dead live on as ghosts, as spirits. But initially, everybody has the same experience. And as the Old Testament progresses even further, there's this developing idea that even though all go to Sheol, that the righteous are in a better place than the unrighteous. And then there's a, a final judgment. And then there's an afterlife after that. And in fact, you can read in Daniel 12, verses 2 to 3, this prophetic book of Daniel. We often think of as uh, Daniel in the lion's den, don't we? And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and interpreting dreams and visions. It's a deeply prophetic book as well. And in there, it speaks of these different experiences of the righteous and the unrighteous in the afterlife. So in the Old Testament, of the references to that of afterlife, I think Sheol's mentioned 66 times in the Old Testament. What I want to draw to uh, this morning is that of Isaiah chapter 25. We're not going to spend loads of time on this, but I think it helps give a bit of context and leads us to the prophetic revelation that this particular passage is, is drawing us to. So in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8, the prophet writes, In Jerusalem, in some translations it may say, at this mountain, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people the Lord has spoken. In fact, it's worth reading the whole of that chapter to give it a little bit more com uh, context in it. It starts in the individual and moves to the community. And there's something about that, that we have both an individual expression of our faith, but also a communal one with God being triune, Father, Son and Holy Spirit as one, that indeed there is that community that takes place. So a couple of observations, firstly, about this, that I think this is both um, comfortably and uncomfortably, perhaps for some, both an inclusive and an exclusive text in the sense of its inclusivity. In Jerusalem, the Lord of Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. So this is beyond tribe the tribalism of the day. This is beyond nation, the nationalism of the day. It's for all, and that's quite a powerful statement in the Old Testament, but also it is exclusive in, in, in nature in as much as it's saying at this mountain, in Jerusalem in some translations, it's here, it's this place, 
It's our God who will spread a wonderful feast and it can be found here. And so there's something of God drawing people to himself. What I love about this passage as well, and really think important for us to acknowledge, is I love the afterlife being um, being mentioned as a feast, a banquet. And as I reflected prayerfully on that this week, I thought, I've just really missed fellowship. And I kind of look forward uh, uh, to the day where we as a church family, a church community can gather together and break bread. And in fact, we break bread later in our service, but it'll be lovely to get together and break bread, as it were, in the sense of having a meal, of sharing together, of being in one another's presence. There's something so important about hospitality, about serving one another. But also within this as well, the importance of, of course, of of caring for the poor in this, that in the afterlife, the banquet is free. <laughs> the meal is shared. It's, there's equality. There's no status. There's not, there's not, it's just this feast. Now, I want to comment on this feast, on this celebration, that this is a victory feast a victory celebration, and it's a victory over the final and biggest enemy. The name David Yardley won't mean anything to you, but as my 14-year-old self, he was my biggest enemy. David Yardley was one of the kids who bullied me when I was at secondary school, when I moved from one secondary school to another and got there to the second place where I went and it was nowhere near as good as the first place on an experience level. I was the new kid, the new kid with potent ginger hair uh, that looked a little bit older than what he was. And when I arrived, it was taken upon this young man to be not my friend, but my enemy. In fact, I had a couple of weeks off school at one point out of fear of what this kid would do to me. And even as a young teenager, as a young Christian, I knew that, the, that what I had to do, I was encouraged by my pastors and friends and family to pray for him. <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> but to pray for him, to find ways of reaching out to him. So even as a young, as a young man, I thought, well, OK, so I prayed for, for this kid David Yardley and I in fact there was one opportunity where I know he was going through a difficult time so I kind of hesitantly fearfully said to him hey mate I'm just I'm going to say a prayer for you at some point and kind of scurried off into the distance before he could say or do anything eventually I won him over won him over and I thank God for that but he was the enemy my enemy at that point. That's quite strong. He was the only one, really. But there's something about this feast that is a victory over the biggest enemy that there is, that enemy being death. 
Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? As the prophet Hosea writes, that there's something about that. Now, I want to draw a few attention to a few more verses to what we've read in 1 Corinthians 15, an important chapter about resurrection, because for us to get to the fullness of Isaiah's prophetic words, we need to go to 1 Corinthians 15 and we need to go to the fullness of Jesus's victory on the cross and his red death and resurrection. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, we read those verses, a few of them. Uh, but of course, later on at verse 13, I shall read, it says, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised Either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. The resurrection of Jesus is central to our Christian faith. It is the unction, the power uh, of God within our Christian faith. As we continue reading in that chapter, and again, I would encourage you to read it, it, the whole of it at some point. But verse 20 onwards, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Church, this morning in Jesus, we have been given new life. And then he goes on to say, but there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will uh, turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say God has put all things under his authority. Now, I'm not going to go too much further into this particular part of this particular point. But Lester say, as we read that he descended to the dead, there would be some who would believe that, 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 uh, that Jesus went to paradise. And as we remind ourselves of the story where Jesus is on the cross and he turns to the thief and says, today you will be with me in paradise. There are others who wish to extend that within this thought as well. And some believe that he went to Gehenna to preach to those who were there as well. As, as you read about just marginally in those verses in, in, uh, in Peter 3 that we read today. But that's not the focal point of what I want to get into this morning. But actually, the point that Jesus's resurrection is central to our faith, that it is all encompassing. So what is the nature, firstly, of Jesus's resurrection? Firstly, I will say this, that it is physical, literal resurrection. This is not reincarnation. This is resurrection. Although there is, I want to acknowledge, a profound truth with the process of death and resurrection in the sense of I take off the old and put on the new. There is something where I let go of the old and take hold 
of the new, for something new to be birthed, something old is to die. But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus as Christians, and I I keep doing this to my iPad because that's where I've got my Bible. (laughs) I've got it both here and here. So I'm kind of pointing at the Bible of where we find this truth and this story, the resurrection of Jesus being physically literal. As he died, he rose again. Now he was transformed. So his his resurrection was not simply a coming back from the dead. It was a defeating of death. Now, we read, of course, in John 11 of Lazarus's resurrection, that Lazarus then died a second death. That would be what's called revivication. But Jesus, in his resurrected body, being transformed that he was no longer subject to aging, to illness or dying again as others did. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, first fruits are important. It's about giving our best, not our leftovers. That's why we're encouraged in our giving to give of our first fruits. The first thing that, 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 that goes out perhaps for, for some may be our tithes and offerings, in the sense of I'm not giving the leftovers of what, what, we've, what God's given us, but we're giving the first fruits. Well, Jesus was the first fruits of God, representing a new kind of humanity, a new kind of human life, a resurrected life. Now, church, that means that you and I as Christians, as followers of Jesus, live resurrected lives in the power of the resurrection. I'm going to get into that briefly in a moment, but let's just say that Jesus's body was made perfect, able to live eternally. Although there were some that didn't initially recognize him, as you read in Luke 24 and John 20, but others did eventually recognize him, pointing to some consistency between his pre and post resurrection body. He was recognizable, but there was something different. There's something different. So what's the significance of the re- of Jesus's resurrection? I'm going to mention a couple of things. There would be lots, but these are a couple of things that I think may be helpful for us this morning before we get into communion. Firstly, Jesus's resurrection is an affirmation of the original good in God's creation. Jesus's resurrection is a resounding affirmation of the original good in God's creation. What do I mean by that? In Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, the Bible says that God saw that it was good. Because of Jesus's resurrected body, we will live in the new heavens and a new earth. There's this restoration, this regeneration that's happening. You can read of that in 2 Peter 3, that because of Jesus' resurrection, we will live a renewed earth, set free from bondage, as Paul writes in Romans 8. That the whole earth becoming like a new Garden of Eden, a new Jerusalem, as is written by the prophet in Revelation 21 and 22. You can read those 
in there. But God saw that his creation was good. One writer called Wayne Grudem, he puts it like this. He says, in this very material, physical, renewed universe, it seems that we will need to live as human beings with physical bodies suitable for life in God's renewed physical creation. Specifically, Jesus's physical resurrection body affirms the goodness of God's original creation of mankind, not as a mere spirit like the angels, but as a creature with a physical body that was very good. Another writer, N.T. Wright, he puts it like this when speaking of the resurrection. The message of the resurrection is that this present world matters. We learn that God, through Christ, intends to reclaim and restore all that he made in creation. So what do we mean? What's our takeaway from that? It's a powerful point, yet a simple one. A physical, uh, the, the physical resurrection of Jesus is the best warning for us as Christians to avoid the trap of thinking that some sort of pseudo-spiritual existence is somehow better, a better form of existence than as we are. Let me, let me put it out in a nutshell. As the pinnacle of creation, God gave us bodies. So love yours. <laughs> As the pinnacle of creation, God gave us bodies, so love yours. Take a walk, eat well, rest well, take care of yourself, love who you are. In a world where comparison eats away and destroys so many lives, Jesus' resurrection, his physical, literal resurrection, is a, is a warning for us not to think that we are, you know, our physical beings and we just want to be super spiritual and live on cloud nine, but actually is an encouragement to love who you are. Final point this morning, hopefully an encouraging one for us, is that Jesus' resurrection ensures our regeneration, that Jesus' resurrection ensures our regeneration. So what are we going to say about this as we come into land in a moment? In Romans chapter three, Paul writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all done something wrong at some point. And yet in Christ, we find forgiveness. In Jesus, we find him saying, turn your heart to me, accept my grace and mercy. Paul goes on to write that all are freely justified. In Philippians chapter three, again, Paul writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, this perhaps sums up the crux of it. He, he goes on to write that the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit at work in us, in you and I as followers of Jesus. So we encounter the person of the resurrection in Jesus. 
and we embrace the power of the resurrection as Christians ourselves. That for me means this, and this is where we land, that we live as Christians because of the resurrection of Jesus. We live from a place of victory, not having to fight for the victory. We live from a place of victory, not having to fight for a victory. Because in Jesus, it is finished. Death is defeated. The enemy, the biggest of enemies, of bullies, of accusers, is finished. I'm hoping that there are some hearty amens being said at home this morning, if not verbally, in our hearts, because I am working up a sweat preaching this message. There is something about. OK, so many of what let me expand briefly is we need as Christians, we don't have to live with a victim mentality. That this banquet in Isaiah is a victory banquet. <laughs> it's a victory banquet. And so rather than having these traits of feeling powerless, that actually as we encounter the risen Christ, it is the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us that transforms us, enabling us to overcome sin in our life. Often we can end up catastrophizing things. Well, I want to say this. Rather than catastrophizing things, let's uh, let's crystallize, crystallize things instead and see through the lens of Christ. Rather than saying, well, I'm alone and I'm isolated. Let's take the invitation to be welcomed into the community of the triune God, his church, his family as a place of belonging. Rather than self-sabotage and blowing things out the water, let's serve others. Why? Because we can live from a place of victory rather than with a victim mentality. And I don't mean that in any um, uh, downcast way for any of us that may be feeling that we're alone. No, come on. This is an invitation from God through the resurrected Jesus, the hand, the invitation of welcome. <sighs> the resurrection of Jesus, literal resurrection is transformative for our Christian life. So in a moment, as we come to communion, we say, Jesus Thank you for your death on the cross and thank you that you rose again, that you rose again. And because of you and the importance of that being the centrality of our Christian faith, we can live in resurrected lives. Resurrected power of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus descended, so he ascended. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. But less to say, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In Jesus, he defeats sin. He defeats death, even into Sheol. In Jesus, we find grace. We find compassion. We find resurrection. We find victory. In Jesus, we find the forgiveness of sins 
and the strength to know that sin will no longer have dominion over us. So, Father, we thank you for all that you are. May that which has been spoken that is of you land in our hearts and minds. May that which perhaps has been of my own strength may may not rest with us. May that which is only of you burn in our hearts this morning. Empower us to follow you unreservedly every day. In your name we pray. Amen.